last time that we were together with Jesus, well, hopefully not the last time we were together, the last time we were talking about Jesus from the Bible, he was with his twelve and they were sailing across the Sea of Galilee when the weather changed, threatening to capsize their little boat in the middle of the night. In the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of their crisis of faith. Jesus was awakened. Why was he awakened? Because he was snoring away. He was awakened by the disciples yelling in fear. And so Jesus orders the winds and the seas to stop their raging. And when the creator of the universe orders the elements into submission, there is that moment of exhilaration, that moment of relief that they'd been spared. But then all of a sudden it dawns on these disciples out there in the middle of the night, in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of their crisis of faith, of what just happened. And one crisis or anxiety morphs into another. You see, the initial problem is that they don't really know who Jesus is. But the problem now is that they are beginning to see exactly who Jesus is. And to sinful creatures, as we all are, it is more frightening being face to face with the Holy Creator than being face to face with the raging of nature. The text leading us into new material this morning in the book of Mark is the historical narrative where Jesus ordered the legion of demons out of a man who was profoundly demonized into the herd of swine. And the thought that occurred to me, unfortunately, was wondering if this is where the idea for deviled ham comes from. I apologize for... The formerly demonized man is freed of his life-consuming infestation of demons. And Jesus tells him to go home and to witness to his family and to his friends of exactly what the Lord had done for him. Complicated and intimidating as we often tend to make what is called testifying for the Lord or witnessing to the Lord or sharing our faith or evangelizing. Telling someone the difference Jesus made in your life is witnessing. This is all witnessing is. In verse 21 of chapter 5, Jesus is back in a boat and now He's heading back the other way over the sea. And we should be getting used to Mark rapidly moving the narrative along from one inspired vignette to another, each meant to underscore whatever the particular focus the Lord is using at that time through Mark. In verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. Picture the scene. Mark notes that Jesus was staying at the seashore. Why that detail? You see, this same incident is recorded by both Matthew and Luke, but they don't mention that little detail. But you see, Mark has a recurring focus, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, 
which is why he writes his narrative of the life of Christ the way he does. Based on what we've read in previous vignettes, Jesus was getting ready, or at least being prepared to get ready, to make a quick getaway. You say, well, a quick getaway from what? Or from who? From the Romans? From the antagonistic Pharisees? Or from the crowds who were thronging to him to the point of exhaustion? See, if you're not familiar with the Scriptures and you've not been around for our previous observations in Mark, that might go down a little hard. Wait, Jesus is getting ready to again flee to get away from the people? You see, most people have this view of Jesus that Jesus is always there for us. And that Jesus enjoys giving good things to us. Now, okay, yeah, you know what? Both of those things are true. With qualification, however. So what do you mean with qualification? Well, Jesus did say, I will never leave you nor forsake you, didn't He? Well, yeah, He did. But in what context did He say that? Well, it comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Jesus says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For, meaning because, He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wow! What a different slant that puts on things. Jesus always being being with you doesn't mean He is standing beside you at Hollywood slots to change your luck with the one-armed bandits. When Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, He's not asking to be put into our pockets and taken along, carried throughout our lives as the lucky rabbit's foot to fulfill dreams and wishes. But rather that you can count on Me as your Lord and Savior, always to be your companion, through thick and thin, through riches and poverty, through good health and poor health, through tragedy and crisis, through good times and celebration. Even though everyone else may desert you, I will always remain faithful to you. And the certainty of My presence, not Hear this well. Not the change of the circumstance is what shall be your contentment. My presence, not the change of the circumstance, shall be your contentment. Of course Jesus loves us. It's why He came. And why He is walking, why He is riding, why we find Him sailing from city to city, from place to place. Not to heal everyone's infirmity, or to answer every crisis, or to solve every life unpleasantry, but to proclaim the news that He has come as their capital, our rock. That He has come as their comfort, as their foundation through life, as the world's substitute in judgment, in death, in righteousness, and He goes to prepare a place for everyone who believes. Thinking about that now, how in the world do you think that Nagme Abedini, Pastor Saeed's wife, is still functioning? 
is still walking with Jesus. While Nagme and her husband have been betrayed over and over by this country, being tortured yet today in an Iranian prison, and has been for three years now. The circumstances haven't changed. Why is she still claiming to be a follower of Christ when prayer after prayer is seemingly ignored? National prayer vigils are held as they were last weekend. And I'm pleased to say that the people of faith comprised a third of the people that were there. But these special prayer services and observations are being held on Pastor Saeed's behalf. And what's the glorious news that has come back recently? He is now being tasered by his captors just because they can. It's not because Nagme's wish for her husband's release has been granted that she keeps staying faithful to Jesus and why Pastor Saeed has not recanted on his faith. It's not because God has miraculously changed His circumstances. It is because like the Christians of Hebrews 11... All these, the writer of Hebrews begins. Who are these? These are those who are still operating under the covenant of works and rituals and all the temporary coverings of sin through the sacrificial system. All these, having gained approval through their faith, nevertheless did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us. That something better was the new covenant of grace not accomplished until Jesus had come and fulfilled all righteousness. Why? So that apart from us, that is believers now under the new covenant, they, the people under the old covenant, would never be made perfect. John MacArthur notes that it's not like these Old Testament believers were second class believers either. But as Jesus said to the one called Doubting Thomas, you remember insisted, I will not believe that Jesus has risen from the dead unless I see the holes in His hand. And Jesus said, Go ahead, stick your finger in it if you want. And Jesus said to the Doubting Thomas, upon seeing the nail holes in His hands, because you have seen Thomas, you've believed. How blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Why do we hear of Christians falling away from the faith? Well, there are gazillions of reasons for sure. But possibly the most common theme is that disillusionment It comes to the critical point of breaking because of a very warped notion of Christianity being the magical solution to all of life's earthly woes. You've heard them. Well, I used to go to church, but then... Well, I used to believe. And then the pregnancy test was positive. Well, I used to believe... And then my baby died. Well, I used to believe. 
And you know, they passed over me at work for my promotion because I'm a Christian. Oh, they haven't said that, but it's patently obvious. Yeah, if there was really a God, and we go on with all these things that has nothing to do with why Jesus came. The kind of faith that is dependent on the rather selfish, self-absorbed, subjective circumstances of life rather than the objective declarations of God to mankind. That's, that's the faith that will crumble. Right after Hebrews 11, coincidentally, all those people it's talking about in there with a super faith, chapter 12 follows on the heels and throws in a ringer. Verse 2 says, Have you considered what it means that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith? Instead of considering what that means, that Jesus is the author and the completer, the finisher of our faith, instead we gravitate more towards the Kenneth Copeland's variety of faith with their name-it-claim-it faith system. Or the Robert Schuller School of Faith with his power of positive thinking faith system. Or the Joel Osteen and his see-it-believe-it-receive-it faith system. And the myriads of other counterfeits, all of which find their affirmation in a big smile change in their current situation. To hell with heaven when you can have your best life now. Let's strip away all the makeup and call it what it is. We go back to Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the Garden of Eden. This is basically the same exchange offered Eve at the very outset of all this by the serpent. We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Let me paraphrase the exchange. Eve, God said, Don't eat or I will die. Satan, the serpent, said, You won't die. You'll have your best life now. Eve, well, it is beautiful. And she ate and gave it to Adam. And he ate. And they died. Eventually, physically, immediately, spiritually separated from God. The demonic counterfeiting authors of earthly faith bait you with the promise of heaven here and now. But from the author of our faith, we see a faith that what? That endured the cross. Oh, Jesus pled at Gethsemane with the Father. Father, remove this cup from me. Oh, but not my will, but your will be done. The author of faith didn't exchange the promised joy of all his obedience one day for a momentary cessation of the horror that lay before him. 
This is why the writer of Hebrews commands us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, Mark tells us, stayed right at the seashore, ready to jump into the boat if His mission for the Father risked being hijacked by the multitudes wanting to take Him by force. Not as the Savior, Creator, God of the world, but as the magic genie come to grant our every wish. Again, I remind us, this is exactly what took place in chapter 1. You might remember that Jesus ran off, literally ran away in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness to get away from the crowds. The crowds who were looking not for the Savior and Lord of the world, not for the author and the finisher of faith, but for the wishmaker, dream fulfiller, come to give them their best life now. Ironically, the next scene that Mark tells or describes might just seem to contradict all of what I just said. But it doesn't. Verses 22 to 24. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus, we'll say Jairus for your comfort, and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he, Jesus, went off with him. And a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Boy, this gets really complicated. Oh, man. It just got even more complicated. So here, why didn't Jesus jump right back into the boat and flee like He has done repeatedly already? Hmm, good question. Because Jesus serves the Father's wishes. And Jairus is the president of the synagogue. Now, you wouldn't know that from reading the typical English translations, except that the archisunagogon, as it is in the Greek, was a lay official in the synagogue who was essentially the president of the synagogue. He was a lay person who was administratively in charge of everything that took place and saw to it that everything was in order and ready for worship when the professional clergy, the Pharisees, would show up. He was a person of quite importance in the community of the synagogue worshipers. This is no run-of-the-mill individual. And all of this makes the story that Mark is telling that much more poignant and helps us understand why Jesus didn't jump back in the boat and run. Remember Jesus' greatest, most faithful enemies were the mucky mucks of the synagogues called the Pharisees. They were again the official clergy. 
the Arkasuna Gongon would of course have been well known to everybody in the community and especially well known to the clergy, to the Pharisees who were Jesus' arch enemies. So this man of notoriety publicly falling at the feet of Jesus is quite an amazing act of humility and of boldness given the animosity of the synagogue leaders in general. And Jesus went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Again, why this detail? You see, it underscores the intense desire of people to get to Jesus whatever it takes to get what they want. That's why Jesus kept fleeing. Jesus kept fleeing. Not interested in the Savior, the Lord, the God, Creator of all. And the synagogue president... A Jew of Jews, well known to everybody, falls before the King of Kings while the crowd just wants to get a piece of him. That is Jesus. Now, there's an interesting television production kind of observation here. Again, this is the strange way that my little mind works. The scene here is on Jesus and Jairus' daughter. And they are en route to Jairus' house to deal with his little girl. But before we even have any development of the rest of that particular plot, Mark introduces a subplot that takes the spotlight off the primary plot at the moment. That is, a new additional plot is unveiled. Verses 25 to 34. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians that had spent all that she had and was not helped at all. (laughs) But rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind Him and she touched His cloak for she thought, If I just even touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Huh? Come on, you see the crowd pressing in on you. And you say, Who touched me? Really? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. 
Mark's presentation of this is a little strange. Jesus is making a beeline to the house of Jairus where his little girl is in critical condition. But as the story is unfolding, another story is inserted, which is hard not to see as a delay keeping Jesus from heading to Jairus' house to get to the little girl in time. In whose time? Maybe this is a delay, not unlike when Lazarus was in critical condition and Mary and Martha sent for Lazarus' good friend, Jesus. We read there, again, another strange delay. When Jesus heard this, that is, heard from his sisters that his best friend, one of his best compadres, was sick unto the point of dying, he said, okay, quick, guys, get all my equipment together. I am heading off right now. You follow me. I've got to get there as soon as possible before Lazarus dies. That would be the normal human response. Now, Jesus loved Martha, and he loved her sister, and he loved Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Say, what? (laughs) You remember what the sisters said when Jesus arrives, and it's too late. They say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But Jesus purposely delayed his arrival so that Lazarus would die. (laughs) Jesus said at the outset, this sickness is not to end in death so that God might be glorified. So when we consider that, it certainly seems plausible that maybe Jesus wanted Jairus' daughter to die Why? To reveal the giver of life to whom death is never the end of the story. Or maybe Mark's bringing in the woman with the hemorrhage. Maybe I'm totally off base. And it simply is illustrating that Jesus was tested in all things as we are yet without sin. Meaning what? Meaning that Jesus being our substitute in life as well as death, but we sometimes forget that He was also our substitute in life. And the fact is life doesn't unfold for any of us in a convenient, orderly pattern. Rather, sometimes we go from one thing to the very next thing. We say, okay, I can't handle any more. If this thing takes place right now and within 12 hours, boom, the exact same thing takes place and you just get this stacking up of inconveniences or at worst, the stacking up of crises in our lives. 
remember Jesus was our substitute in life. So maybe again, this is nothing more than that to see again that Jesus was tested as we are in all things and yet he never sinned in the process. Or then again, maybe it's both of those. Whichever is the case or both, there's something important here. Jesus wasn't looking for whoever the person was who happened to bump into him in the crowd or just wanted to get a piece of him out of some superstitious knowledge. Like, if I can just touch this guy, man, I can make my wish and poof, it'll happen. That's not what's going on here. Jesus sensed in his innate human being that there was an emission of supernatural power from him that went out to someone in the crowd and it was a power to heal. Now, this is getting a little woo-woo-ish. So maybe Luke adds some light to this. In Luke 5, different scenario. One day Jesus was teaching... And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And I don't know how many of you have ever stopped and went, wait, what? And thought through this. And the power of the Lord was present for Jesus to perform healing. I do not have time to go into depth in this because it's beyond the purview of this message. But think about what this passage in Luke implies, not just about faith healing in all ages, but also about Jesus' innate ability to heal. Remember that Jesus is fully God. Yeah, we got that. But He is also fully man. Oh yeah, we got that, or at least we think we do, but we really don't more often than not. No, he was fully God and he was fully man. And as fully man, guess what? There were limitations that Jesus received unto himself in his role as the Savior of mankind, God incarnate. It's not an argument by assertion. Like what you say? Well, like limited knowledge. Speaking about I'm so glad the eclipse and the blood moon has passed. Hoi Concerning the end times, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun. And we can insert, and not even Facebook. But only the Father. It's another example of limitation. John 5.19, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you that the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus did not have autonomy from the Father. And in the concept of the Trinity, that just kind of takes our minds and goes, but so be it. So Luke's enigmatic statement about the power of the Lord being present for Jesus to heal implies implies that there were times and places when Jesus couldn't 
because the power of the Lord, meaning God the Father, was not present. Back to our passage. Jesus calls out the woman with a bleeding disorder and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Oh, don't the name it, claim it. False prophets of today love this verse. God wants you to be healed. God wants you to have that house. God wants you to have that man. He wants you to have that woman. He wants you to have that job. He wants you to just fill in the blank. If you just have enough faith, it's yours. Which means... And I researched this heavily from the horse's mouths in my book, The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity. If you haven't received your miracle yet, you know why it is. It's because you don't have enough faith. Well, that's really interesting. Because even God incarnate depended solely on the power of God to empower Him to do any healing at all. It's not about how much faith I have. It is all about God's sovereign decree in that moment for His purposes, for His glory. The writer of Hebrews says, God apportions to whomever He will for His desires, referring to gifts of all stripes. that power wasn't present, no healing was taking place, no matter how much faith you might have. Oh, the guilt trips that have been laid on hundreds of thousands and is being laid on more continuously under, under the heresies of bad theology. This woman was seeking after Jesus with the faith that this Jesus was who He said He was. And He was who He said He was. So much so that if I could just brush His garment, I know I'll be healed. And she was, and Jesus commends her for her faith. Her faith in what? Her faith in faith? That if she had enough faith, her faith would faithfully bring about her faith-filled healing? No. Her faith that before her stood the very Son of God who came to save sinners from their sins. Healing? is never, hear this, healing, miracles, not just healing, I should say miracles, are never about the miracles. Never. So any book, any sermon, any crusade, any revival that makes healing, that makes the miracles about the miracles, is off base and should be rejected. Because a miracle can only rightly be performed by the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus tells us Himself, 
when the Comforter comes, He will bear witness of me, the gift giver and not the gifts. And anything off of that is an absolute heresy and a counterfeit. It needs to be rejected. What about Jairus' daughter? Well, she's going to have to hang in there until next Sunday. Or they're going to have to put her on ice. Or whatever they did back then. We'll get to that and find out. And we'll see what happens. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, thank you. Thank you for giving us clarity into your word. It is not sometimes easy. But, oh God, I pray through your spirit you have given clarity today. Simplicity in the midst of complexity. And, oh, that we would marvel that you are God Almighty. Nothing less. And you deserve us, our allegiance, our devotion, our willingness to be used by you for your purposes, wherever that takes us. In your name I pray. Amen.